0: welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here on the show. I've never had anybody from Slovenia on the show. This is the first.
1: Well, that's a good thing. Right.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your, your journey mm-hmm. and how you got to Singapore. Sure. Also biosensorics. Yeah. And the problems that you're solving.
1: Good. Maybe we can start about how you got to Singapore. How long have you been here now? I've been here for around uh, four years now. Uh Yeah. So basically my journey started, I was a researcher doing medical diagnostics and research mainly for um, hemorrhagic fevers, meaning like Ebola, dengue, hantavirus, all that dangerous stuff. So my main goal actually when I was doing research and my PhD was to develop new diagnostics, for example, for Zika. Uh, Try to figure out why some people die from hemorrhagic fevers, why some people don't. Hmm. Even though there's no vaccine, no treatment, some people just survive. And um, I also spent a lot of time in the field, meaning that I went to low income countries like, for example, Kosovo. I helped them out, set up diagnostics, and just to figure out how to cope with the disease there. Also, did a lot of um, field testing in the field, meaning hmm. going from village to village gathering samples from humans, from cattle, from ticks. Basically, I wanted to get blood. Right? Yeah. We were, I was a professional vampire. That, <laughs> that's what I was. And uh, during my time doing my research and diagnostics, uh, I was lucky enough to meet my now co-founder, Professor Robert. Mm-hmm. So we actually met in Stockholm during one of the European projects. Um, he's a professor at Ben Gurion University in Israel. And I just fell in love with the technology that he's making. Right. And he had that extra thing, which is, you know, he was a researcher, but he was also very passionate about business, creating stuff that actually matters and people can use, right? So eventually he uh, invited me to come to Singapore. So he, had a, he was the co-PI of a very big create project here funded by NRF. And I came here as a postdoc. Basically, Mm. I was supposed to... So, you came here to study. Yeah. I mean, uh, I came here as a researcher, yeah, Mm -hmm. under NTU. uh, And the main goal at the beginning was for me to continue research, continue developing. But, you know, my internal goal, I never wanted to do research for, you know, for the rest of my life. I wanted to create something. I wanted to create a company. And more importantly, I really wanted to create something that people can use at home. Mm. So, a diagnostic device that's cheap enough, good enough and basically that you can do home testing for whatever disease you want to do. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Robert, he had the solution for that, so he had a patent for that. We started raising more funds from you know Singapore, MIT, for spring, and eventually we started a company together. And that was Biosensorics, what, three and a half years ago? Mm-hmm. Um, so the core principle of what we're trying to do and the technology we have a very simple low cost solution for home testing or for on the spot testing in the field testing right meaning you put a, b- a drop of blood on a disposable device and you get a result within 15 minutes
0: can we we've got some of the devices on your website i wonder yeah. if you, these are the ones that you're talking about just so some of the viewers can so actually um, i got one here oh you got one here let's do the show and tell what yeah. you got there
1: so basically that's the that's the can we just hold that up to the camera? that's tiny that one it's very tiny that's the purpose
0: of it right. right it's about like a size of a usb drive right
1: it looks like a usb it feels like a usb right right so the the whole purpose basically the innovation is actually inside it's yeah. the chemistry yeah. it's the um, how we can make it cheap enough how we can make it good enough hmm. so basically this is a device that's a laboratory that you can hold in a in mm-hmm. your hand Right. And at the beginning, we were actually doing dengue testing. So what you would do, you would put a drop of blood here, mm-hmm. then wait fifteen minutes, and it would tell you are you going to have severe dengue or you're going to have mild dengue. Right. Because that's something that you cannot do. So is it, can that be done at home, or is it can, can be done at right, home? It can be done at a clinic, in right. an ambulance, depending on what disease you're trying to yeah. solve. And um, actually, we went through uh, different stages of our company, mainly. Trying to figure out what's that killer application, right. you know, because dengue, even though it's very important in the south, uh, Southeast Asia, maybe in Africa and uh, South America, uh, people are not too, uh, let's say, hot about it. Right. right? So we went on to uh, kidney disease for male f- male fertility, and now we ended up with preventing stroke at home. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's based on the same technology, a different biomarker. And what we're trying to do right now is give um, people at high risk, like stroke survivors, a tool that they can actually use at home and monitor their risk
0: of stroke. So can I work out if I'm at high risk of stroke by taking a blood sample? Yeah. Right, what would be the biomarker there? Then? So
1: the biomarker is actually um, BMP, okay, that's a very scientific... It doesn't thing. mean anything to me. Exactly, yeah. it's a heart failure biomarker, Right. us right. like that. So
0: your, your blood consistency changes as a result of being at risk at stroke. It's
1: basically, okay, it's like this, you have the simplest uh, comparison I can make is a glucose test, Yeah. right? yeah. So, you actually, it works similar to a glucose test. You basically put your drop of blood here, mm. and instead of measuring the level of glucose, it measures another biomarker, right, okay. another protein. Right. And that uh, protein then tells you what's your risk of stroke. Gotcha. So, basically, if you're a stroke survivor, and you do that on, a let's say, twice a week, you mm. do the t- testing twice a week, basically, we can tell you when your biomarker shoots up, right. go to a hospital, yeah. go to a doctor, get treatment, and prevent stroke. Got it. Is there anything out there at the moment that outside
0: of the blood testing, or is it only blood testing that people can identify stroke risk? Uh,
1: the only thing that they, they can do actually today is just measure blood pressure. Right, okay. And you know, still you got over 70% of people, stroke survivors, they will get another stroke within right. a year or two. Yeah. Um, it's not very specific, it's not very good, and this device can actually um, solve that. Hmm. So basically what you do in the end, you know, you put your blood here, And then you put it in a reader, yeah. And then you basically get results in your phone. Right. Can I have a look at that? Yeah, sure. The
0: camera here. Okay. So if I was just to hold this up to the camera, if you can maybe. So
1: there's two parts to this. There's the reader, which is this part here, and then you've got the the little sampler here yeah and that's a one time use disposable thing you basically put your blood right. in there wait fifteen minutes and then throw it away do you
0: use that you, do you prick your thumb with that or how does it how do you take a blood you set?
1: have a lancet like uh, the same thing what diabetics do right, right? it's like okay yeah.
0: Yeah, like a little stapler or yeah something exactly like that. Right. right okay so that's it and okay so this is what what device is
1: this what's this called it's called Ellie actually okay. we uh, it's a the scientific name for it is Electrolateral Flow. Okay. But we just shorten it to Ellie because no. it's a very nice, uh, cute name. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So,
0: uh, how many, you must have done the research on this, roughly, how big is this market for something like that? I mean, what sort of percentage of populations are at risk of stroke and where is it most prevalent? What sort of markets? Is
1: it an age thing? Is it a demographic thing? Yeah. So actually, what we're now focused on is mainly U.S. Yeah. Uh, so for example, in U.S. alone, if we take a look at our very early adopters, these are stroke survivors. So we have around 7 million stroke survivors in U.S. alone, mm-hmm. right? And that's, that basically amounts to around $9 billion market with the stroke survivors alone. Yeah. The next population that are at very high risk of stroke are diabetics, mm. especially those over 40. But it, it actually anyone can use it, right? It's only a matter of fact who's actually willing to use it. So because you still need a blood break. So uh, mm. you know, a regular 25 year old is not going to even think about doing a blood break every week yeah. to measure uh, the risk. So if you have any uh, risk factors like diabetes, heart failure, or just old age, you might actually be willing to do that. Right, right. Yeah. If you're a diabetic, you're doing this all the time anyway. And right? you're doing it anytime. time.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I, I'm not a medical person by any stretch of the imagination, so I'm not going to claim to be. The correlation between diabetes and stroke, is that a real... I mean, is it, is it a high correlation?
1: Yeah, a very high correlation, right. yeah. That's basically one of the... Uh, there are two things that are basically um, are the highest risk for stroke, diabetes and heart failure. Right. You know, because both of them actually influence, in the end, your blood clotting capability, mm. yeah. right? And how you get a stroke is actually you get a blood clot that gets stuck in your brain. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very uh, easy way of saying it. Of course, we cannot prevent all types of stroke because some types of stroke are basically uh, your blood vessel just pops. We cannot prevent that. Right. But 80% of stroke is what we call ischemic, which means that it's caused by a um, blood clot. Right. Yeah. Okay, so if I was, let's say I was diabetic, I'm
0: over 40, I'm on the wrong side of 40,
1: Yeah.
0: I'm testing myself, my markers are up, it
1: says, you know, I'm above the safe yeah.
0: level. What do I do? Do I go to the hospital? Do I get You go, you administered go to drugs, a or?
1: hospital, you go to a doctor, they do then a full checkup. Right. They need to figure out what really is happening. Uh-huh. Is there a, clot, a blood clot? Where is it? and basically the treatment then is very easy they give you a very powerful blood thinner yeah and they remove the clot and Mm. that's how you basically you uh prevent stroke yeah because the only alternative today is for you to not know that not go to a doctor and get a stroke yeah and anyone that had a family member or a friend that had a stroke they know how big of a pain and how difficult Mm. the process is you know my grandma she had a stroke and what, what it means is it's not just that stroke part that's, you know, terrible. Of course, it's terrible. But uh, after stroke, a lot of times you get very disabled. Basically, yeah. you cannot talk. You cannot um, walk. You're paralyzed either one side or both sides. And the biggest impact is actually in that rehabilitation. Yeah. So that involves the whole family then. So, for example, for my grandma, she had a stroke. She was basically back to being a baby. You know, Mm. she couldn't walk, she couldn't talk, she had to relearn everything. And because there was no way of monitoring for the second stroke, it took her around eight months to, you know, start talking. She could actually recognize me again. And but then after eight months, she got another stroke and she died. Wow. You know, after all of that pain and Mm. you have to think it's the whole family is involved. Yeah. You have to take care of your friend, your family member. Um, it's a big stress, it's uh, a big cause depending on what country mm-hmm. you are in, uh, and in the end all of that for nothing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what we get is, we get a lot of messages, a lot of um, emails from stroke survivors saying, look, this is something that we want, that we need, mm-hmm. and help, um, they're basically trying to help us to get to the stage where it's on the market as soon yeah. as possible, yeah. Uh, it's
0: interesting you talk about your, your story about your grandma is that uh, my mum went through a similar situation and um, I think you, you talk about that sort of family support thing yeah. and obviously there's a big cost involved just in time and emotion and supporting yeah. that one person. Putting it back on the the survivor, mm-hmm. the stroke survivor if you like, that the challenge is is that I, even if, if they're mentally capable yeah. then the biggest challenge for them is feeling in control and that you know suddenly you know they were a very fit person mm. who had a social life and you know maybe they were working maybe they weren't but they were actively contributing and being part of society and then they weren't but they still realized that they come from this place and they want to be in control now you know they can't walk properly and they have to wear a diaper and exactly. all these kind of things but having a device like this i think in a way Gives them a bit of control back, doesn't it? It feels like yeah. I'm in control of this now.
1: You got, you know, you got some extra help. You got a mm. peace of mind. You know, nothing is 100, percent and we're not claiming this is going to solve every stroke, because it cannot. That's just biology. But uh, giving the power back to the user, having some kind of support, mm. that's a very big deal. Yeah, definitely. You know, because uh, you you don't want to be every stroke is actually. It's a lottery you know the next stroke if it happens on the same in the same area might not be that terrible and you actually might come out of the stroke like nothing happened you know a lot of people have a stroke and they don't know they had a stroke mm-hmm. but again that's a lottery you can actually get much worse and like you said a lot of people that get a stroke are actually fit people yeah you know a friend of mine he he never drank he never had coffee he never smoked and he's thirty five and he got a stroke yeah. And it was basically, you know, um, a pure luck that he survived and survived without any serious consequence, right? But again, that's a lottery. Hmm. Not many people are actually that lucky. Yeah. All right. And I'm curious about
0: the why behind this is that um, you mentioned earlier on that you were out in the field doing research work. You were gathering blood samples. And I guess... That kind of work wasn't the most glamorous work in medicine, right? You know, you trained in medicine. I think sometimes the medical community gets so skilled that they sort of step away from the field, and it's sort of like the natural progression. They become the consultants, and they, yeah. they sit in their ivory tower, but you are out there gathering blood samples. I know you mentioned Ebola, for example, and dengue and these, these killer diseases. Were, yeah. you, were you actively out there? I mean, when that Ebola outbreak happened a few years back, is that anything to do with you? Did you ever think about going out and doing that? Have you well, ever been in that I mean, the
1: reason why I went into what I do is because of um, I wanted to deal with you know the most dangerous diseases that don't have um, treatment, uh, they don't have a vaccine, right. and at least thirty percent mortality. That was my benchmark. Why? Um, but well, you
0: could. You, why, why make it difficult for yourself? Because it's
1: interesting. Okay. You know, it, it's a, it's a challenge. You know. Hmm. Um, first of all there's uh, if you make a breakthrough if you do anything in those diseases you make a huge difference right mm. that's the first thing the other thing i wanted to wear is uh, you know that spacesuit and that's the other one and it's just you know i was a dork you know right. I, I wanted to um and the third one is um there's just I don't know, it's something interesting, something, you know, dangerous, mm. uh, you know, some people like to jump off a plane. I wanted to do that. Right. And, and was it
0: dangerous? I mean, obviously there's diseases out there, but you know, are you actually, you see medics go out yeah. into the, the, the front line and treat people. Is it actually dangerous for them doing that?
1: It all depends what kind of training you have. Right. Okay. For, for uh, somebody not trained, it's super dangerous. But as long as you know and you've been trained and you've done it a lot, it actually becomes very uh, routine. Yeah, You know, that's also the reason why I got, um, how would I say, bored of it. You know, mm. it wasn't exciting enough. I always say that when uh, Ebola and these diseases became um, not dangerous enough, I decided to create a startup. Right. That's a bit more dangerous <laughs> than that. Um,
0: it's an interesting comparison.
1: Yeah, but you know, Something that the field gave to me, and that uh, right. that's all got to do with my mentor uh, back home, uh, Tatiana Auschic. She's one of the biggest virologists in the world. Yeah.
0: And so, what was her name again? To shout out. Tatiana
1: Auschic. Yeah. Right. So she actually discovered one of the biggest hantaviruses in Europe, the Brava. Mm. And the one thing that basically she gave me is that sense of yeah, you do good lab work, you you work in a space suit, whatever, mm. but going in the field. Uh, Meeting, you know, families in the villages, that gives you the real appreciation and you actually see what needs to be done. You know, because I've seen a lot of, you know, uh, scientific journals and papers and technologies being developed. But when you actually go in the field, you realize that none of them will work. None of them. You know, you, you have amazing american german hmm. scientists creating you know these super you know tricorder type devices but they will never work in a environment that's not us right. that's not a high-end hospital in us why it's too it's too expensive it's not easy enough to use and you know they also forget about simple stuff like you might not have aircon you might not have good electricity and you might have a lot of dust, humidity, yeah. whatever. And a lot of these companies and research projects they just fail because they never been in the field. Right. And you know, by spending a lot of time there, realizing what the real issue is and how how important it is to have the whole package. You know, it has to be fast, accurate, low cost, and like army robust. Mm-hmm and when i saw the technology uh that uh, robert my co-founder invented basically that ticked all the marks right right that's well, that only... based
0: on your experience in the field itself yeah you've seen these devices fail. so when he came along with this it was yeah. like okay
1: and you know he had basically the same background he yeah. had the same mentality you know he actually spent a lot of time in africa in senegal uganda again right, right, right. going to the villages you know yeah. and you also realize that Uh, For example, if you want to go into Africa, you know, you you say I created the best diagnostic test ever. And if you think that you're just going to go there and start selling, it's not going to to work.
0: So if that was developed by somebody who didn't spend time in Africa or in the field, and I'm sure there are alternatives out there developed similarly, how would it look? How would it be different, do you think?
1: Uh, First of all, they would be much more expensive. Yeah. They would be bulkier. They wouldn't be as uh, easy to use, or um, they would rely on technology that's very fragile. So, if you take a look at our competition, for example, most of them, let's say 90% of them, they're using optical readout, optical way of doing the actual measurement, right. either being um, uh, fluorescent, luminescent, yeah. whatever type of optical. So, shining a light on the sample. Shining a light detected, and then capturing right. the light, analyzing the light. Yeah. That's one of the best ways to do it in the lab, Uh, without a doubt. That's the most sensitive, the best way. But think about it. You need a laser. You need a lens. You need software to do all that. That Mm -hmm. means that you need power. You need computing power. And when you try to transport something like that, the moment you hit it, the moment it drops, the moment you give it to somebody that doesn't know how to use it, the lens might move, the laser might not work. And in the end, who's going to pay for it? The cheapest, um, you know, optical device that you can make, so you can actually sell it at a profit, would be around two thousand USD. Mm. And so, how much would that cost? I mean, how much does it? You sell it at? So basically, the reader is fifty bucks. Right. And we can actually give it for free. Right. What and would this you give one it for free. Yeah. Why? Because we make money on this. Oh, okay. Right.
0: So yeah. you sell that separately. Yeah. Okay. And how much do you sell that for?
1: So this depends on the disease, but it's going to be around ten to fifteen USD. Okay. Yeah.
0: As low as 10 to $15?
1: Yeah, oh. per test. And then you just, you know, right, throw it, it away. away, yeah. But is one test is enough, If so, or
0: is this going to be like a regular thing?
1: Basically what we're going to offer, especially for stroke, is like a subscription model. Yeah. So you pay 50 bucks, you get four tests per month, yeah. and you don't have to worry about it. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Okay. Fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about the the um, fundraising at the moment yeah. because you you mentioned that you raised funds with Spring or uh, the Spring and Singapore F- MIT Smart. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So um,
1: you have. W- where are you now in terms of the age of your company? So we are still considered a very early startup, yeah. especially in the medical field, because you know we have a regulatory regulatory path that we need to go through. Right. Uh, what we did right now is we opened a company in the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's focused on the US market, and we are fundraising on a platform called StartEngine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the beauty of that platform, and I encourage any new startup that actually wants to raise funds is to go there, is basically crowdfunding for equity.
0: Right, so equity crowdfunding. Yeah, okay, so yeah, gotcha. basically
1: you, um, what they offer is a very, first of all, very robust platform, a lot of investors. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's basically, they're always innovating. So, for example, today, you, if you have Bitcoin, you can use your Bitcoin to invest in a company mm-hmm. and get shares. And with more progress they make, they're actually going to make also a secondary market, which means like a, a stock market for private companies. Mm-hmm. So, if you're not willing to wait three years for a biomedical device to make an exit, you can sell your shares in a year.
0: Right. Yeah. So, you're fundraising on Start Engine at yeah. the moment. Do you have a fundraising target?
1: Uh, So we're raising a million uh, Mm -hmm. to get to that uh, FDA stage.
0: Right. Okay. So that will get you the licensing in the U.S., the FDA approval. We'll get to the stage where we can file for FDA. Oh, Okay. So you can file for FDA. Okay. All right. So are you um, a U.S.-only company?
1: Uh, So Biosensorics is a Singapore company Uh uh, which holds the master license. And Eclipse, which is the U.S. company, Eclipse Diagnostics, holds the rights for the US. Got it. Okay, just so we can clarify, we establish that. And until now,
0: how have you funded, I know you said you had gone to Spring and MIT, Singapore MIT. Uh, Is it all funded by these partners or have you, you know, do you have angel investors? We
1: have some angel investments Uh as well, but we actually managed to do uh, most of the work just by uh, utilizing grants.
0: Right, okay. And Singapore is a great place for Yeah, definitely,
1: definitely. It's basically one of the more uh, generous um, countries in the world in terms of early r and d
0: yeah so we had on the show not long ago um Stuart Kerr, who came from dyson who 's in medical devices, but he makes the um, what what are they they so they are glasses with embedded hearing for mm-hmm. like, you, you can con- it 's conductive hearing loss, so you can go through the bone mm-hmm. so instead of like plugging in the hearing aid into the back of your head. You can wear a pair of pretty cool glasses. And he his funding route was with um, a German manufacturer, a German medical devices company, mm-hmm. and almost entirely funded by them. So I'm just curious as to... Why you've chosen your route, and you could have gone to a pharmaceutical company, you could have gone to a medical devices company, and they would have looked at what you said and thought, "Wow, that's sort of, you know, in our matrix, that's the one that we haven't got covered. We'll invest in that." So, how have you? Why have you chosen to go through the route that you've chosen?
1: The main reason is we we want to control how the device is being built, what the application is. We don't want to be, you know, a lot of these. Um, partnerships with big companies especially at a very early stage can be beneficial from a point of view of funding Mm. but they also restrict your freedom in terms of what you want to develop how you want to develop and how fast you want to move and what's very important for a startup at our stage is we need to be um, uh, very agile you know we need to be lean agile We, we need that freedom to be able to um seek and you know grab opportunities as mm-hmm. they come because mm-hmm. um for example a year ago um you know like i mentioned we had to do a, a few pivots you know go from dengue to acute kidney failure basically to find that niche space where we fit in very nicely mm-hmm. um, so yeah
0: was all that pivoting natural to you because you come from a medical background and now you you're in the startup world so to to focus on researching and developing a product and then change like in your direction I can imagine in the medical community it's probably a rare, thing to do, isn't it? That yeah. maybe people focus on one area for 10 years or maybe the whole career, right? Yeah. Did that come naturally to you or was it a bit of retraining?
1: No, no. that Completely natural. I mean, for me, it's always what's best for the company. Hmm. You know, um, you got that innovator's dilemma. I don't have that. Right. You know, in terms of, um, I don't care, I mean, I don't care if it's my baby. And if I think that, you know, for example, dengue is the perfect disease, even though I think it is for Southeast mm-hmm. Asia, you know, I don't, uh, I'm willing to move, I'm willing to pivot, I'm willing to do what's best for the company, yeah. how to bring it as fast to the market as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in the end, that's gonna be the most beneficial thing for me. Yeah. And if I can find a way to bring the product to market, then, you know, I can, uh, at a later stage, take care of my personal agenda of creating that perfect dengue test. Yeah. You know?
0: And you're obviously quite conscious about what the long-term vision is as well, because yeah. you've got an idea of what you want to do with this. How do you see this in the future? What kind of company would this be?
1: So basically what I see is, especially with all the big companies now trying to get, enter the home testing, um, either from a medical point of view, from a, just a lifestyle point of view, hmm. I see this as a device that anyone could have at home and then it depends on their needs what they want to test right so you have the you know universal uh, reader that can read any test and then if you're a stroke survivor you get a stroke test Mm -hmm. if you wanna uh, check for dengue you get a dengue test if you're interested in fertility you get fertility testing that's how I see it I really want to see it in every home Um, and then whatever you need you buy what you need and test it whenever you need. Is it applicable then
0: to lifestyle testing as well because i know you mentioned i mean fertility may be sort of in the middle there but there's people who might want this for i'm just freestyling now but for sport for example if you're a professional athlete you want to increasingly they want to test their their blood sugar yeah recovery and so on is it relevant in that sense definitely that's something
1: that we're working very hard to also move forward yeah especially for high performance athletes and uh, for example, for managers and uh, just to increase the performance of people.
0: Yeah, because there's a big movement in the US at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, the everywhere, even entry. in China.
1: Right. It's like, you know, um, you want to gamify your life, right? right. You want to know where you are, where you stand. For example, a lot of people are using, you know, supplements, right? Yeah. And 99%, 99.999% of supplements are um, worth zero, yeah. right? They say they enhance your whatever, and actually they don't do that. You know, they're just, you can eat a carrot and feel the same uh, difference. But, you know, by a- by being able to quantify either your recovery, your, I don't know, um, whatever you want to see, they're actually then able to differentiate between supplement A or supplement yeah. B. Yeah. Right? That It gives that first... Um, in-hand validation of the products that you're using yeah. and you actually might figure out that you don't need anything else but a carrot you mm. know in the end
0: right yeah. takes the guesswork out of it exactly. it's split testing your life isn't it anyway? exactly yeah. All right, fascinating. And um, let, let's talk a little bit about your your team itself. I know you say you're, you're agile, so we know yourself, Luca, and your co-founder Robert. Yeah, is it just you two, or how many other people in this? No, sort? so we
1: um, we have uh, four people in US, mm-hmm. uh, two people now in Singapore, and uh, three people in Israel.
0: Right. Yeah. And what do they do? Are they on the sales They're side? They're all research and development. They, okay. So
1: we are at a stage that all the business is handled by myself yeah um all the scientific stuff is handled by Robert and so uh, we don't have any sale the only thing that we do have is a bit of marketing in us because yeah. uh, we need to get the outreach for the crowdfunding campaign but uh, basically ninety percent of our resources are aimed at r and d getting Building, the product to market yeah. Yeah. okay
0: so once you once you've got that to market, how do you intend to then get it to
1: the you know a wider customer base? So it depends on what application you're looking at. Uh, one of our goals is actually, especially for stroke, is to partner for the, uh, the large-scale commercialization and marketing with a big company. Yeah. That's when we would actually be yeah. willing to go with them. Because we don't see, you know, we have to realize where our strength is, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, our strength is in developing cutting-edge technology and marketing and sales might not be the best strength for now. Yeah. And if big companies have already those channels made up, why would we try to recreate that? Exactly. Yeah.
0: And f- for them, your product, really, they can just add it to that exactly. channel. And it's just to the bottom line for yeah. them, right? They can they, add it to existing relationships.
1: Basically, well. our goal is to de- de-risk the project for them, yeah. basically, to a minimum. Yeah. So once we get FDA approval, they can pick it up and uh, sell it.
0: Okay, so you have a team, a pretty agile team, 10 people
1: more or less, right? Yeah. Um, are you recruiting at the moment? Uh, at the moment, yes and no. Right. I mean, we're always on the lookout for good talent, right? right. What's good talent to you then?
0: Because I think you've got a, you're, you know, with a, with a product like yours and a vision like yours, the
1: culture is really important, yeah. the mindset, isn't it? So what are you looking for? Uh, we're looking for people that are actually that know what it means to work in a startup. Uh, and you know it's not easy to find those kind of people, right. especially in a very uh, uh, affluent uh, environment like Singapore, right. where you can get very good jobs at a very easy um, bank. Yeah, basically. So we're looking for highly creative people right. uh, very determined, very um, just putting willing to put the hours in, yeah. right. And that's one of the biggest uh, attributes that we're looking at, and loyalty, Yeah. right? Because um, we cannot compete with the big companies to give a big salary, but, you know, there's an upside in working with a startup, as yeah. long as you're willing to put in the hours. But the most important thing is creativeness. Yeah. You know, I don't care if you have a PhD. I don't care if you have three PhDs. If you're not able to solve a problem... Um, in a creative way, or just solve a problem that that implies creativity, then you're not worth anything, yeah. right? Um, just having a lab technician in the end, you know, you can get it anywhere.
0: Yeah, and would that mean people from the medical community? Or when you talk about creative problem
1: solvers, could they come from anywhere? Biotech. biotech you... they, need, they need to have, you know, it's a biotech uh, mm. um, product in the end. So we need to solve, you know, technology problems, right? right? But for example, when I joined, you know, the the core principle of our technology is electrochemistry. And I was always terrible at both electronics and chemistry. I had zero knowledge about it, right? I was good at biology, microbiology, viruses, all yeah. of that. But, you know, it didn't stop me from learning, you know, because I do have that creative part. Um, I can now solve problems that I, you know, just by using logic and creative thinking that um, I couldn't. Yeah. In the past. But I've also met a lot of PhDs that are doing electrochemistry and weren't able to solve basic problems. Exactly. So for me, then, you know, was the worth of that PhD. Right.
0: So if I was, for example, a PhD or a lab technician, or I came from a biochemistry background or electrochemical background, and I had potentially ahead of me a very safe career yeah why, why would I you know I might be staring out of the window wondering what I could do with my life but why would I look at a startup like yours and thought, oh this is a really good idea I'll go and risk everything yeah. and come and join you what would be do you think the real draw because you're not going to give them a better salary in the short term mm-hmm. and you're not going to give them job security but what would it be what's the missing part in what they're doing at the moment
1: um, happiness actually uh, you know, I, had, I always say, look, if I go back, I had the perfect job, okay? I, I had the typical job of, I had my route set up to be a professor. I was in the best lab in the world, mm. the best colleagues. I had a steady job, meaning I knew I would get a salary next week or next month or even in a year. There was no issue about it. I could do any project I would. I was traveling all around the world, conferences, all of that. But something was missing. And what was that? That, you know, if you have that drive, that, you know, just that eagerness of creating something new, mm. going out of the mold. Because in the end, what I really thought, and I, that's basically something that any young researcher has to think about. When you're on your deathbed, you don't want to be thinking, why didn't I? Three dots. You don't want to be thinking that. Why didn't I do that? Mm. And you can always go back. You can always find a regular job. You know, always. And if you have that drive, if you want to create something, if you want to be a part of a very big mission, you know, be owning something. Hmm. You're not really owning anything except your publications when you're a researcher. And that gets boring very fast. And then you get a lot of pressures, Just, you know, give one more publication, one more publication, one more publication, and seek those big journals. Yeah, for some people that's a thrill, but if that's not a thrill for you, if you want to really create something, be a part of a bigger picture, um, then you have to decide are you willing to risk it or not? But remember, when you're on your deathbed, you don't want to be saying, why did I Yeah, right? Exactly.
0: Well, I'm sure you speak to a lot of people and I'm sure there are people out there who are wondering, you know, you mentioned partnerships. You've mentioned people that you would be interested in talking to who might want to join your team and help you build at some point in time. Um, you're also equity crowdfunding as well. How do people get in touch with you? What's the easiest way to get in touch with Luca?
1: Uh, email, LinkedIn uh go on our start engine campaign Mm -hmm. write us a comment or an email all the information is out there um yeah we'll put it all in as easy as that yeah yeah.
0: excellent luca it's been a real privilege thank you for coming on the show thanks luca fies yeah luca fies everybody from Biosensoric, go and check out his crowdfunding campaign and also drop him a note if what he says struck a chord with you if you're one of those guys who may be staring in the window seat of a medical company then you know maybe there's a better opportunity out there for you luca thank you very much
1: thank you very much